find your way back to Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And when you found it, would you bow with me in prayer? Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before your word this morning and we confess that it is good news. And we will receive it as such. It's good news that those who were strangers to the covenants of grace. Those who were separated from the people of God. Can be called the children of Abraham and the sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so my prayer today. Is that by the power of your spirit, through the working of your sovereign grace, that you would take somebody who is not of faith. And that you would grant them faith. That by the hearing of faith, that they would receive your spirit and so become a child of Abraham and be included in the covenant of grace. And be included in the promise of the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. And be welcomed into the land of promise where they will dwell with you in eternal joy. Would you do that today? Raise the dead. Give sight to the blind. Give hearing to the deaf. And would you open afresh the eyes of your people to the inestimable blessing that it is to be called a child, a son and a daughter of Abraham, which is to say, a son and a daughter of God. Bless this time. Speak to everyone through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll forgive me for periodically stopping to take drinks of water, I don't usually like to do that. I don't get uh, dry mouth very easily, and, uh, but I was very, very sick this, this uh, week and, and got terribly dehydrated and quickly realized as I came up to read just a few minutes ago that I had not drank nearly enough water this morning. And so at the risk of blacking out, I'm not slain in the spirit if that happens, I don't think. But uh, I would appreciate being revived and carried back to the couch in my office. At the end of this message, I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Are you a child of Abraham? Now, immediately I can think of three objections that may pop into your mind and would cause you to tune me out. The first would go something like this. How can I be a child of Abraham, I, who am the most Gentile person I know, I don't have a Jewish bone in my body. And secondly, why does it even matter? Well, throughout the course of this message, I hope to answer both of these objections. First, by showing you that anyone, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, married or divorced, college educated or high school dropout, convicted felon or upstanding citizen, anyone can become a child of Abraham by faith in the gospel. And secondly, 
I hope to show you that there is no more pressing question to which we could turn our attention this morning because only the children of Abraham will live forever in eternal joy in the presence of God. But there is a third objection that may rise, taking the form of hearing the word salvation or hearing me preach about faith and mistakenly concluding that this message doesn't apply to me because I, quote, have already done that. Well, to you, I issue this admonition. Beware that you are not utilizing a different definition of faith than the Apostle Paul. Because Paul is very careful, and I hope that you picked up on it as we are reading through verses 6 through 9. Paul is very careful to emphasize that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Which may mean something altogether different than having asked Jesus into your heart once upon a time so many years ago. Remember that the righteous are not those who begin by faith, nor those who had faith. The righteous are those who live by faith. So often when I approach a passage of scripture in search of its meaning, I will begin by asking questions of the text. And we're going to approach the message in the same way today. We're going to ask four questions of this text, and then we're going to conclude by allowing the text to ask a question of us. So the first question that we need to answer is this, why Abraham? Kind of came out of nowhere in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So we're asking ourselves, why does Abraham, or why does Paul rather, bring Abraham into the argument at this particular juncture in the middle of chapter 3 in the epistle to the Galatians? Well, it's clear, if you look at verse 6, the very beginning, it's clear that verse 6 is logically connected to what has come just before by that connecting conjunction in my Bible, just as, or even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Even so. In other words, verse 6 is coming right on the heels of what he's just said in verse 5 and what he's just said in verses 1 through 5. That the Spirit comes not by the works of the law, but through the hearing of faith. Even so, or in the same way, or just like Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the example of Abraham in Paul's mind is in some way a defense of the argument that he was making in verses 1 through 5, which itself is the defense of the central thesis of all of Galatians, which is found in chapter 2 and verse 16, which says that sinners like us are not justified by the works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to give you three reasons why I believe that Paul brings Abraham into the argument and why the example of Abraham proves that point that Paul is seeking to make. Reason number one is this. Abraham was justified by faith just like the Galatian Christians. See, in Galatians 3, 1 through 5 that we covered last week and connected to this morning, Paul belabored the point that the Galatians had received the Spirit not by the works of the law, but by the hearing of faith. They hadn't done anything to merit the gift of the Spirit. They performed no works whatsoever in order to get right with God. 
They simply heard the promise of the gospel. They heard the message of Christ crucified for sinners. And they believed that God was both willing and able to save them through the shed blood of Christ. They heard. They believed. They were justified. And the evidence of this was that they received the spirit. God poured out his spirit upon them. And Paul says in Galatians 3, 6, that Abraham was justified in exactly the same way. Not by the works of the law, but by the hearing of faith. Abraham was justified. That is, he was counted righteous, reckoned as righteous. Not by doing, but by believing. So Paul says, even so, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him, accounted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. Now that's a quotation from the Old Testament. It's a quotation from Genesis 15.6, which is a very important point that we'll get to in just a moment. In Genesis 15, the Lord had come to Abraham and had taken him outside his tent and made him a promise as they looked up together at the night sky. Made him a promise that his descendants would outnumber the stars of the heavens. Which was a very incredible promise because Abraham, as yet, had absolutely no children. And in fact, he was very old. And in fact, his wife was barren and could not have children. It was an incredible promise. It was an unbelievable promise. And yet, Abraham believed this unbelievable promise. And in believing, God justified him. That is, God declared him to be righteous. Abraham, who was in fact unrighteous, God declared to be righteous, not by works, but by faith. Abraham was old. His wife was barren. There was every reason not to believe. But as Paul writes in Romans 4, in hope, against hope. He believed. And with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. So we learn from the example of Abraham that justifying faith is a belief that God is both willing and able to do all that he has promised, sometimes in the face of unbelievable odds. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Paul to us today at First Baptist Nixa in 2014... Justification before God, that is a right standing, a right relationship with God, has always been and will always be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There has never been, nor will there ever be, another way by which God saves sinners. That's what we learn from the example of Abraham. But there's a second reason I think Paul brings Abraham into the picture, and it's this. Abraham was justified by faith Long before he was circumcised. Which is very important to Paul's argument to the church in Galatia. Because Paul's opponents in Galatia were teaching the predominantly Gentile churches. That unless they were circumcised and adhered to the law of Moses. They could not be saved. They could not get right with God. And they likely pointed to the example of Abraham. As as their, their example of their teaching. 
calling him the father of circumcision. An illustration of the kind of faithful obedience that wins the heart of God. The kind of faithful obedience that proves one's worth with God. The kind of faithful obedience that earns God's declaration of righteousness. That's the way that they handled Abraham. And what Paul comes in, what he does is he comes in and he wrests Abraham out of their hands and says, No! Abraham is not your example of working. Abraham is God's example of believing. Because Abraham was justified before God long before God told him to do anything. Long before God commanded him to be circumcised. Abraham is not your example of your heresy. Abraham is the predominant example of my gospel. Abraham was justified in Genesis 15, 6 when he believed the promise of God concerning his descendants. And it wasn't until many years later in Genesis 17 that God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. In other words, Abraham was right with God by the hearing of faith and not through the performance of a work. That is, not through circumcision. Therefore, in Paul's line of argument, you can see how this would hit home really hard to the Galatians. Justification cannot be by faith and circumcision. As Paul's opponents were telling the churches that it was. The example of Abraham proves that God accepts sinners like Abraham, like them and like us. On the basis of faith and faith alone. Not on the basis of faith and works. Not on the basis of faithfulness. But on the basis of faith in the promise of God. There's a third reason why I think Paul brings Abraham into the discussion here. And that's because Abraham was justified by a persevering faith, but not a perfect faith. Abraham is a really encouraging example to me. He's an encouraging example to weak and weary sinners everywhere and at every time. He was far from a perfect man. He was far from a righteous man. His faith stumbled. And at times it even failed. I'm reminded of Genesis 12. When Abraham went down to Egypt and he was so afraid of what Pharaoh would do to him that he lied about his wife Sarah and said, well, well, she's my sister. Well, in a weird kind of Genesis way, it wasn't actually a lie, but more of a half truth. The point was, though, that he did not believe that God was willing and able to protect him and to fulfill the promise that he'd already made to him. And he had to be rebuked by a pagan king. If that wasn't bad enough, he did exactly the same thing in Genesis 20 when he lied to Abimelech and said, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And another pagan king had to rebuke him for his lack of faith. We're reminded of the time in Genesis 16 when Abraham, in his faith, wavered. And he tried to bring the promise of God to fulfillment in his own power and in his own way by producing a son through a surrogate wife named Hagar. But through it all, from Genesis 12 to the end of Abraham's narrative, somewhere in the mid-20s of Genesis, through it all, God persevered with Abraham. God persevered with Abraham, and his promise remained steadfast and sure. Abraham believed the promise of God with a faith sometimes weak and sometimes strong, a faith sometimes triumphant, And sometimes failing. A faith sometimes obedient. 
and sometimes not. But a faith, the flickering of which never burned out. He believed the promise of God and he kept on believing. That's the reason why he's known by this one characteristic. Look at the end of verse 9. How is Abraham described? Abraham the righteous. Abraham the obedient. Abraham the believer. Abraham is Paul's example to us of a faith that remains. Abraham was of faith, and so were all of his children. Which brings us to the second question then, who are the true children of Abraham? Paul says in verse 7, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Here Paul launches a direct assault on his Judaizing opponents who themselves claimed to be the true sons of Abraham and told the Galatians that if they wanted to become the sons of Abraham and therefore the sons of God, that they needed to be circumcised and come underneath the law of Moses. Just like Abraham was circumcised and kept the law. Well, in response, Paul makes a very startling claim. That there is only one thing that makes a person a child of Abraham, and it is not circumcision, and it is not the works of the law, it is faith and faith alone. Only those who are righteous before God, not by works, but by faith, are the children of Abraham. And I want to spell out some of the implications of verse 7 so that we will feel the weight of it this morning. Number one, being a son of Abraham then does not depend upon physical descent. I want you to hear me. Being a son of Abraham is not dependent upon physical descent or physical birth. This is huge. If you want to understand the gospel and if you want to understand the whole storyline of scriptures, of the scriptures, and if you want to walk your way through the prophets and not get totally lost and think that it has absolutely no relevance to you in the 21st century Nixa in a Gentile church, you need to understand this point. Ethnic descent does not determine whether or not you are a part of the people of God and an heir of the blessing of Abraham. Being an Israelite by birth does not automatically make you a child of the promise. Paul confirms this in Romans 9, verses 6 and 7, where he writes, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, not all Israelites are the people of God. Not all of Abraham's children are the true children of Abraham and the children of God. Jesus himself said as much in John chapter 8 when he was in Jerusalem and was sparring with the unbelieving Jewish crowds there who said, Jesus had said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they they bristled up and they said, free? We've never been slaves of anyone. We're the sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're not the sons of Abraham. You Jews are not the sons of Abraham, for if you were the sons of Abraham, you would do like Abraham did. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. You're not the sons of Abraham, and furthermore, you're not the sons of God. You're the sons of your father, who is the devil, and you're a murderer and a liar, just like he was. 
They did not believe in Jesus as the Christ. And therefore, they were not the children of Abraham. So being, being an Israelite by physical descent does not make one a child of Abraham. That's a huge implication. We're going to pull that out a little bit later in this morning's message. So kind of keep that in your back pocket. Here's a second implication. Being a son of Abraham does not depend upon the works of the law. Paul derives verse 7 from the point that he just made in verse 6 as evidenced by the first word, therefore. He said in verse 6, you know, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then he draws a conclusion. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the children of Abraham. That is, those who are justified by faith and not of works are the sons of Abraham. So being an Israelite or a child of Abraham or an heir of the promise is not by circumcision and it's not by the works of the law. Well, if it's not by physical descent and it's not by circumcision of the works of the law, if I can't be born into God's family by physical birth and if I can't work my way into God's family by circumcision and the keeping of the law, then how do I become a child of Abraham? And Paul says this, you know what? It's by one thing and one thing only and that's by the hearing of faith who are the true children of abraham only those who like abraham are justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law which is the only way that a person can be justified and i want you to understand what that means for you this morning and what it meant for paul's original audience it means that paul's gentile converts in galatia hear me were children of Abraham and his Jewish opponents who were teaching the false gospel were not the children of Abraham. It means that anyone, including any of you, can be a child of Abraham by faith in the promises of the gospel. Which brings us to a third question. The children... Received the blessing of Abraham. So we need to ask, what is the blessing of Abraham? It's actually the fourth question on your bulletin, but I messed up when I sent that in. What is the blessing of Abraham? The blessing that was promised to Abraham and to his descendants. Well, Paul speaks of the blessing beginning in verse 8. Saying the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, if we want to get a grasp, get a handle on what this blessing involves, we're going to have to take a little journey back through Genesis. So if you'd flip to the very first book of your Bible, let's go first to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3 because Galatians 3.8 is a quotation from Genesis 12.3. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All right. In you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Got it? Turn over five chapters to Genesis 17. The promised blessing 
that was given in Genesis 12 is reaffirmed and is expanded and is specified in chapter 17. Where God again comes to Abraham and reaffirms the covenant. He says, beginning in verse 4, we'll pick up. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Skip down with your eyes to verse 7. I will establish my covenant between you or me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, before I unpack for you what the blessing of Abraham is, you still in Genesis 17? I want you to notice this. The promise is given to Abraham and to his children. Do you see it? Verse 7. This promise is for you and your descendants, your seed, your children. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, the promise said this. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth. But in chapter 17, that promise is narrowed and is made more specific. I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth by making you the father of a multitude of nations. So Abraham's children then, the same children that he's going to enter into this everlasting covenant with. We're going to pack that apart in a few weeks. These children then are not just going to include ethnic Jews. Do you see it? He's the father not of one nation, but of a multitude of nations. So not not just Jews, but also Gentiles. And in verses 7 and 8 of Genesis chapter 17, Abraham's children are included in the covenant that God made with Abraham. So let's follow this logically, and then we're going to apply it a little bit. So the children of Abraham are the heirs of... Of the covenant promises made to Abraham. In other words, the blessing of Abraham. So what we need to do, we need to find out who the children are. We've already done that. The children are those who are of faith. So what do the children receive? Three things are included in this blessing promised to Abraham. Three primary elements. Number one, God makes to Abraham and to his children a promise of a people. God promised to make Abraham a father of many nations. He promised to make of Abraham a people who would outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. He promised to bring from Abraham a people for his own possession. And who are these people? It's not the nation of Israel, it's not the physical descendants. It is all those, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, who belong to Christ by faith. Look at Galatians 3, 28 and 29. That's what Paul spells out specifically. If you belong to Christ by faith, you are the son of Abraham and the heir according to the promise. Who are the people that God promises this blessing to? It is the multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in Revelation 7. The multitude that no man can count because they outnumber the stars. 
The multitude that no man can count because they outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. The multitude that no one can count who are gathered before the throne of God, who are dressed in white, blood-washed robes of Christ. It is the same diverse crowd for whom Christ died and whom Christ purchased for God at the cost of his very own blood in Revelation chapter 5. Who are the people of God? It is you if you are of faith. If you are justified by faith like Abraham was, you are the people of God. The people upon whom God showers the eternal riches of his grace. You, beloved, are the blood-bought child of Abraham. You're the people of God. It also includes a promise of a place. God promised to Abraham a land for his possession. Specifically, the land of Canaan. Now, here's the question. You all are reasonable people. So let's think through this for a little bit. Is God only speaking of that narrow strip of land over in the Middle East over which so much blood has been shed in the last 4,000 years? Well, let's turn to Romans 4.13 and see what Paul thought. Is Paul only talking about the geographic nation of Israel, the land of Canaan? Or does he have something much, much greater in mind of which that land is but a shadow and a hint? In Romans 4.13, we'll see how Paul interpreted the promise of a land. Do you see it? For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the what? Heir of the world. Was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Heir of the world. Which sounds to me like thought, Paul thought that promise included something much bigger than that piece of land. In Hebrews 11, the author states that Abraham was looking for a city. A city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 11.10 that he was looking for a heavenly city prepared for him by God, 11.16. In Revelation 21, we see this city coming down out of heaven from God. Beloved, the place that God has promised to Abraham and to his children, that is to you who are of faith, is nothing less than the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promised land. That's the land which God has promised to all those who love him and come to him by faith. And it's yours. But what makes the place so special? What makes the place so glorious? Is that God himself will be there. So the last element of the promise is the promise of a person. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and no longer any mourning or crying or sickness or pain for the first things have passed away. God has promised in the blessing of Abraham nothing short than himself. He has promised in in Genesis 17, he said to Abraham, Man, I'm going to make a covenant with you and with your children to be their God and they will be my people. This covenant of grace, as we'll learn in a few 
sermons later in Galatians 3, was established and fulfilled in Christ. Do you, do you comprehend the magnitude of this good news? We, every one of us, were God's enemies. Separated from Him by our sin and our rebellion. Underneath the curse of his wrath. Genesis 3, beloved, we were cast from his presence. But he sent his son to bear our curse, to pay our debt, to absorb the wrath that was due to us, to suffer the penalty in our place, in order that we could be reconciled to him, in order that we could become his people and he could be our God, in order that we could be brought back into his presence from which we were cast out due to our sin. He took away our filthy garments of unrighteousness and he's going to clothe us in the blood-washed garments of his son. And he welcomes us and he bids us to come into his heavenly banquet. He says, you sinner, you wretched one, you enemy, you are sinner and wretched and my enemy no longer. You come in, you come into my land, you come be my people and I will be your God. Not by works. Not by effort. And not by striving, but simply by believing that God is willing and able to do what he has promised to do. That is to save sinners like us through the blood of his son. And if we are of faith, we'll be blessed along with Abraham, the believer. Which raises the fourth and final question. So we better be very, very clear on what it means to be. Of faith. Now this is where my admonition at the start of this message comes into play. I hope, I hope that you recognize by now that it is those and only those who are of faith who receive the blessing of Abraham. But I also pray that you've begun to realize as we've been working our way through Galatians thus far. That according to Paul, faith does not refer to a one-time decision having little to no effect upon the rest of one's life. Rather, it refers to an entirely different state of existence. An existence that is not characterized by law and by works, but an existence that is characterized by grace and by faith. The righteous are those who, what? Live by faith. Now, I previously offered to you a definition of saving faith a couple sermons ago when we were working our way through the second half of Galatians chapter 2. And this definition included two essential elements of saving faith. Number one, saving faith is a relinquishing of all competing claims to, to righteousness. It's a, it's a letting go of every other hope that I have of being justified before God by my own works and my own morality and my own righteousness. I've got to empty my hands and I've got to let it go. I've got to relinquish every competing claim of righteousness, everyone, and number two, empty-handed then, I've got to rely solely upon the righteousness of Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's saving faith. Well, this morning I want to add a third element to that definition of saving faith, one we've hinted at already. 
Saving faith is, number one, a relinquishing of all competing claims to righteousness. Number two, a relying solely upon the righteousness of Christ. And number three, a continuing of living by faith in the promises of the gospel. Is this not what Paul says in Galatians 2.20? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To be of faith is to come to Christ by faith and to live in Christ by faith. And the children of Abraham are those who are of faith. I want to provide you with an illustration that I heard a few weeks ago from your friend and mine, Don Piper. And then we'll close. I want you to picture heaven as an orchestra hall. And the music of the symphony as the glory of God. Now everybody here, I hope, will agree that faith is the requirement for getting into the orchestra hall. In order to get into the orchestra hall, you must believe. But I fear that there is prevalent in, in many modern churches and maybe, maybe prevalent among some of you a misunderstanding of what true biblical saving faith actually is. See, there's a false notion of faith which thinks of trusting in Christ as buying a ticket... To the symphony. A ticket which once purchased. I can, I can put in my back pocket. As a guarantee that when the day of the concert arrives. I can pull out that ticket. And present it at the gate. And I will be granted admission. Into the heavenly concert. But until the day of the concert. With the ticket in the back pocket. I continue to spend out the remainder of my days. With my affections captured. By the music of this world. Says Piper of that kind of faith, quote, that is not the biblical view of faith. It is nothing but a delusion. See, there are, I think, at least two problems with, with that view of faith. Number one, it's false. And when the day of the concert actually arrives, you will not be granted admission into the orchestra hall because the ticket master will glance at your ticket but one time and will immediately recognize it as a counterfeit. And you will hear him say on that day, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But number two, supposing that you were somehow hypothetically actually granted admission into the concert, you would hate it. Because the majestic, symphonic tones of the glory of God are so vastly different than the thin, digitally fabricated music of this world. And your ears would not be used to it. In other words, the kind of faith that is merely a ticket in your pocket that does not attune your ears nor your heart to hear and to love the music of the glory of God is not faith. If that's the kind of faith that you have, you are not of faith and you are not a child of Abraham. 
So what does it mean to be of faith? True faith works like this, I think. Instead of purchasing a ticket, which is impossible anyway, you hear a message on the radio that there's going to be a symphony of the glory of God and that everyone is invited to attend. You've never before cared much for heavenly music, but something, something within you stirs at the thought, quite in spite of yourself. Having heard the message, you simply believe that when the day of the concert arrives, you'll be granted admission. Now, over the course of the next several days, weeks, years, until the day of the concert comes, your taste for the music of this world wanes as you increasingly find it flat and thin and false and unfulfilling. And correspondingly, as your love for the music of the world wanes, your love for the music of heaven grows, and you find yourself increasingly longing for the day of the concert. And when the day finally arrives, you walk up to the orchestra hall and the doors of the great hall swing open before you and the attendant says, welcome, Mr. Hopped, we've been expecting you. Let me show you to your seat. And he he leads you to the place which has been reserved for you from all eternity. And when the conductor raises his baton... And the heavenly symphony launches into the majestic tones of heavenly splendor. Your soul floods with joy unspeakable, full of glory. And so Piper writes, quote, that faith is a precondition for enjoying the symphony of God's glory. Not in the sense of getting a ticket, but in the sense of getting an ear for heaven's music. The real precondition for enjoying the music of heaven throughout eternity is a new heart which delights in the things of God. Not a decision card that you carry in your pocket to ease your conscience while your mind is yet captivated by the delights of this world. End quote. So I urge you, beloved, take heed that the sons of Abraham and the heirs of the blessing promised to him are those and only those who, like Abraham, are of faith. Those who are justified by grace alone through faith alone and who live by faith in the promises of the gospel. Which brings us full circle to the last question, the question with which we began. So are you a child of Abraham? Are you a son, a daughter of Abraham? The good news of the gospel to us this morning is that you can be. Every one of you. No matter who you are. No matter where you come from. No matter what you've done. No matter where you've been. It doesn't matter if you don't have an ounce of Jewish blood in your veins. Because inclusion in the true family of Abraham is not by blood anyway. It's by faith and by faith alone. So if you this morning would become a child of Abraham and an heir of the inestimable blessings that were promised to him and to his children. Then you must do what Abraham did. You must believe. You must believe 
the promise of God. You must not waver in unbelief, but growing strong in faith and giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God has promised, he is able also to perform. Namely, you must believe that God is both willing and able to save a sinner like you through the blood and righteousness of his son. And if you will believe the promise of God, you will become a child of Abraham. And you may spend the remainder of your days getting ready for the heavenly symphony because I promise you, beloved, it's going to be glorious. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the blessing of the gospel. Anyone here, no matter their past, no matter their present, no matter their lineage, no matter their baggage, no matter what sin and shame and guilt they walked in with this morning, anyone is invited to attend the symphony. Anyone is invited into the family by faith and by faith alone. So I pray for them right now. I pray for those in this room. Only you know who they are. I certainly don't. Those who are not yet children of Abraham who are excluded from the promises of God, who are strangers to the covenants of grace. Would you grant them faith? Send your spirit like Lydia. Open their hearts to believe the message of the gospel. So that hearing they may be justified and declared righteous in your sight. That they may believe that Christ died for my sins. That the price has been paid. I owe nothing more. For my faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I'm not going to dare to trust in any frame. I'm going to wholly lean on Jesus' name. Grant them faith. That believing they may call upon your name, ask you to save them, ask you to forgive them of their sins, ask you to make them new and to fill them with your spirit. Give birth this morning. Birth from above, birth by the spirit. Make children. Of those who are not. And for those of us who are. I pray that you would. Open our eyes. And our hearts and our minds. Once again to what it means to be of faith. So that we could say with the apostle Paul. It is not I who live. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Do your work, fulfill your purpose, save your people. We ask this in Jesus' name.